Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Nothing seems more calculated to put a smile on the face of a nation than a tremendous haul of Olympic medals. As we are recording this episode of The Rest of Is History on the modern Olympics, Britain is rejoicing at the news that we have podiumed in a range of sports, swimming, diving, cross-country, mountain biking, and perhaps by the time you listen to this, there will be even more. And of course, um, this, for anyone who lived through it, cannot help but remind us of uh, nine years ago and the wonderful two weeks at London 2012, when the enthusiasm of journalists and columnists went off the scale. Um, and it's mentioned in a wonderful book I've been reading, The Games, A Global History of the Olympics by David Goldblatt. And he, uh, he's, he's looking at the press coverage and he cites a columnist who was writing in the Daily Mail, who stands proxy, David Goldblatt writes, albeit at the more florid end of the scale, for much of the commentary from both left and right. And this columnist from the Daily Mail, who stands at the more florid end of the scale, wrote, even for people who detest sport, the past two weeks have been a patriotic extravaganza with few parallels in our recent history. And I think that regular listeners to the rest of history will know who David Goldblatt is talking about here, who this columnist for the Daily Mail might be, Dominic Sandbrook. Tom, I thought that was going to be embarrassing, but then you used the word podiumed. And I realised that actually I was going to, I'm, I've come out of that much better than I thought. I'm obsessed by verbing. I think, I think it was 2012, wasn't it, that it all kicked off and people talked about well, meddling and meddling and meddling. Yeah, and meddling. I, I, I cannot stop doing it. Anyway, so I'm guessing from that, um, you know, you're at the more florid end of uh, enthusiasm for yeah. Olympic, Olympic mania, that, uh, that you're a big fan. No, that was a good example. About a week before the Olympics began, I'd written a column saying um, I hated the Olympics and it was all going to be a disaster. <laughs> and then, in, and in and in traditional columnist fashion, you know, you ten days later, I was miraculously converted <laughs> to, the, to the joys of the Olympics. Actually, I'm quite an Olympic skeptic. I, I genuinely wouldn't be bothered if the Olympics were abandoned. And, and I, of course, I celebrate British medals as much as anybody. But I think as we will discover the history of the Olympics, I mean, we did the history of the ancient Olympics last time, and that was a pretty gory business. The history of the modern Olympics is, is also a pretty gory business, I think, though in a different but way. The brilliant, but, but, but from the historian's point of view, they're brilliant, aren't they? Because they're a kind of four yearly temperature check. Absolutely. On yeah. the state of culture, global politics, whatever, uh, yeah. which just makes them fantastic. I mean, and, until I read... David Goldblatt's book, which I, I didn't really know much about the uh, the Olympics, the modern Olympics, but it's such a fascinating topic. And actually, I, I kind of fell down any number of rabbit holes looking at the beginnings of the Olympics. Yeah, and actually, um, if you go through because it, actually, they are they are so interesting. They are the stories around them are so peculiar. But but Dominic, you you um, when we talk about the you know the absolute beginnings of the modern Olympics, yes, I, I mean this is very much your patch, isn't it? Because basically. Um, 
it's it's a kind of Cotswold Shropshire story. It is. It is. So the very first, well, this, we'll get to Shropshire in a minute because I think Shropshire is where the Olympics really began, the modern Olympics. But there's an antecedent, which is, of course, the Cotswold Olympics, which I'm sure you know about, set up by a man called Robert Dover in 1612 in Chipping Camden. In, in basically the most, you know, the Hollywood sort of quintessence of Englishness, isn't it? Chipping Camden, um, sort of arts and crafts movement, bucolic, pastoral, idyll. And he set it up. It's unclear why he set it up. Some people think it's, because, it's to do with the defence of the realm and manly virtues. And others say it's about it's something at a time of great uncertainty and, and sort of political isn't, unrest. Isn't it kind of also he's, he's Catholic? I think very, something like very that. Yes. Catholic. Yeah. So it's, isn't it also about kind of Maypoles and Merry England? I think there is a lot of that. Yes. A lot of um, kind of frolicking. Well, the as, sports. As the Puritans are gearing up to ban it. Exactly. The sports are very Merry England. Sledgehammer throwing, uh, fighting with cudgels, <laughs> shin kicking, <laughs> shin kicking, which they still do. And my favourite sport. Are you? Are you? Are you an aficionado of dwile flonking, Tom? Uh, we talk of little else in the Holland household. So, uh, just uh, of course, I'm a great fan, but just remind me what it is. Do you want me to remind you of the rules? Yes. I'll remind you of the rules. So, a dull-witted person is chosen as the referee, <laughs> as the referee or or jobbernowl. <laughs> the two teams decide who will flonk first by tossing a sugar beet. What is flonking? I, I, well, I'm going to explain. The game okay. begins when the jobbernowl shouts, "Here you go together." <laughs> <laughs> the non-flonking team join hands and dance in a circle around a member of the flonking team, <laughs> a, pra a practice known as girting. The flonker dips his dwile-tipped <laughs> driveler into a bucket of beer and <laughs> spins around in the opposite direction to the girters and flonks his dwile at them. If the dwile <laughs> if the dwile misses completely, it is known as a swadge. When <laughs> well, naturally. What else would it be called? <laughs> When this happens, the flonker must drink the contents of, a, of an of an ale of a, sorry of a, of a, no, wait, control yourself. The flonker must drink the contents of an of an ale-filled gazunder before the wet dwile has passed from hand to hand along the lines of now non-girting girters chanting the ceremonial mantra of pot, pot, pot. So that's dwile flunking, and I believe it was invented actually in East Anglia and has oh, since okay. moved to the Cotswold Olympics and the Cotswold so, Olympics. Um, so why is that not on Sky Sport? Well, this is the thing. Why don't they do that at the Olympics? I mean, they do football, and that's a complete joke yeah. at the Olympics. They do basketball, which is also a joke. I, I like the idea that the ref has to be a village idiot. Yes, a dull-witted I mean, the job owl, I think yes. is the um, anyway. That'd be great, wouldn't it? So they they do these kind. I mean, obviously that that the Cotswold Olympics, which still continues, has now become a bit of a sort of a, you know, it's become a self-conscious kind of joke. But obviously, the interesting thing to me about this is that that's 1612. They didn't do the dwarf flunky in 1612, by the way. That's a more recent innovation. Um, but but obviously there was a, a buried memory, wasn't there? Of the ancient Olympics, I suppose among... it gets recaptured with the Renaissance. Yeah, Helena so, so Shakespeare starts to talk about kind of Olympian contests and, yeah. and so on. Um, and it's and Milton. Milton talks about um, Satan as being uh, like an Olympian runner. Does he? Yeah, which of course you know Milton is writing is very much from the Puritan end of 
things. And so it's not surprising that with the with the, the civil war and the protectorate that that gets banned, right? I think. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. That there's a lot of well, there's distrust of of sport because I suppose sport, organized sport, is seen as it's just exactly what we were talking about before, isn't it? That it's it it's they are much closer to that sense of sport as religious as part of a religious yeah. festival. Um, so, it, but 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 clear. I mean, clearly they have absolutely no idea at all about what the ancient Olympics actually involved. And not, I guess that as you go through the 18th into the 19th century, people do start to have a a better sense of that. So, 1794, apparently there was a chariot race at Newmarket between Nanny Hodges and Lady Lads for 500 guineas, and the time said that it was something like a revival of the Olympic Games. Right. That's interesting. And didn't the French revolutionaries? Yeah, Danton. Uh, yeah, was a big fan. Big fan of the Olympics. Was, they used metric measures. First time metric measures were used in sports. Shameful moment. Um, um, <laughs> so yeah, so, so and then of course you've got Greece. So when Greece becomes independent from the Ottomans, yeah, eighteen twenty-one. Is, the, is that there are there are kind of calls from poets and nationalists and so on to reinstate the Olympic Games, and they, yeah. they do have they have. Um, in 1859, they, they hold what are called Olympic Games for um, uh, over three Sundays in Athens. Uh, and they have running, they have horse and chariot races, they have um, discus, javelin, um, and they have the climbing of a greasy pole. <laughs> so Benjamin Disraeli could, could participate yes. in that and, yeah. and would do very well. I mean, he'd have been there, perfect timing for him. So at those games, they have prize money donated from a small town in the Midlands of England called Much Wenlock. And the ones that, in Greece? Yes. Oh, the people they? of Much right. Wenlock send money to the, those games in Greece. Now, why? Well, this brings us to the true birthplace of the Olympic <laughs> movement, which is the Shropshire market town of Much Wenlock, where my parents lived for the best part of 15 years. You um, must be so proud. I'm very proud. And it's a very big deal in Much So one of the London 2012 mascots was called Wenlock. There were two, Wenlock and Mandeville. Mandeville, Stoke Mandeville being the birthplace of the Paralympics. Much Wenlock, the birthplace of the sort of the summer games. Um, and they have a little museum in, in Much Wenlock and you can walk around. There's an Olympic trail. All these sort of things. So genuine, you know, this is not just Shropshire chauvinism on my part. There's a genuine historical um, reality here. And basically, the guy who started is a man called, a fascinating man called William Penny Brooks, who's a classic Victorian kind of do-gooding reformer. So he sets up things like an agricultural uh, reading society. And he has this series of what he calls classes to do different things in the town. And the, in 1850, he sets up the Olympian class. I, I mean... This is pure, I think Goldblatt talks about this in his book, and it, it, it absolutely gives you a sense of the Victorian mindset at the heart of the um, of the Olympic movement. Because the, the the rubric of the Olympian class says it's set up for the promotion of the physical, of sorry, the moral, physical, and intellectual improvement of the inhabitants of the town and neighbourhood of Much Wenlock, and especially of the working classes by the encouragement of outdoor recreation and the award of prizes annually at annual meetings for skill in athletic exercise and proficiency in intellectual and industrial attainments. So there you have pure kind of Victorian um, improvement. Um, and they hold it at a local race course. They have some brilliant events at the first um, Wenlock game. So they have football, cricket, they have quoits, 
running, cycling on penny farthings, um, a blindfolded wheelbarrow race, and my favourite event, one that stands comparison, I think, with Dwyer flunking, um, an old women's race with the prize being a pound of tea. Again, something I'd like to see at the modern Olympics. I think there's so much scope for, for innovation there, isn't there? And well, they're still it's doing. It's a shame that they've all kind of fallen away. No, but I mean from the from the, the proper Olympics. And talking the, the proper Olympics, Olympics is so dull, isn't it? Well, so the proper dull, Olympics, because the way that this influences what comes to be what we now think of as the Olympics is because Baron de Coubertin yeah. comes, and he's he's tremendously impressed. So he goes in 1890. He goes to Shropshire. Now, this is fascinating. Coubertin, I mean, I'm sure you've got lots of stuff about Coubertin. I think he's a fascinating guy. He's the son of a royalist, isn't he? A mm-hmm. French royalist painter. And basically, I think what's absolutely central to this is the Franco-Prussian War. So he's oh, yeah, grown up on. in the yeah. aftermath of the Franco-Prussian War. France has been humiliated. And all the talk is of, you know, manliness, unity. France is so divided, of course, in the last years of the 19th century. And he becomes obsessed with Tom Brown's school days. Yes, he loved it, didn't he? Because he loves cause, it. Because that's the fascinating thing. The, the, the inspiration for the Olympics is only very dimly kind of the Hellenic Games, the original games. I mean, it is important to Cooper I mean, he does have a sense of that kind of the, the, the spiritual dimension that the games had for the Greeks. Yeah. But really, the influence on him, as you say, I mean, it's the kind of Victorian manliness and... It absolutely... He believes... And, and the fascinating thing is, actually, he's got it wrong. He thinks Thomas Arnold, the headmaster of rugby, was all about sport and muscular Christianity. And he puts a huge emphasis on this. But actually, Dr. Arnold wasn't that interested in sport. But it's Tom Brown's he's, school days. Right? He's confused Tom yeah. Brown's school days with reality. So Kubertin has read this Tom Brown's school days. He's obs- he believes that at rugby, men were taught to be men and all this sort of stuff. And so he comes up to Shropshire on this pilgrimage because he thinks this is... And he sees all the old women in wheelbarrows <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and he says, brilliant, this is how we'll beat the Prussians. <laughs> um, <laughs> next time, you know, because we've been doing coits, we will be prepared. Um, and so he then... So I think it's only six years. He, he does it very quickly. I mean, it's it's not just about kind of preparing for war with the Prussians, though, is it? Because he he's actually very into the... The, the yes, ideal yes. of, I'm being, of I'm internationalism. Being yes, he is. Because when he gives his famous speech in 1892, calling for the Olympics to be revived, he, he I mean, he fret, let us export rowers, runners and fencers. There is the free trade of the future. And on the day it is introduced within the walls of old Europe, the cause of peace will have received a new and mighty stay. Yeah, yeah, so that's, it, that's it, fair. That, I'm being that, hard on him. So that actually, I mean, that it's kind of internationalist talk of peace. Yes, I guess provides to the modern Olympics what the the much straight to us the much stranger kind of spirit that involves sacrificing a hundred oxen to Zeus supplied to the to the ancients. But I isn't guess. it weird though, Tom? You're absolutely right, and I think that that spirit that spirit it's very kind of nineteen late nineteenth century globalization, isn't it? That that and and sort of a descendant of the liberal free trade free ideas, all that sort of stuff that was so popular in the mid-19th century. Um, but it has so little in common with the ancient Olympics. Yeah, yeah, very little. I mean, basically, they take the name, they take the torch, and they take some of the iconography. But the iconography but, grows up over Over, over a long time, yes, it does, yeah, exactly. So there immediately. And, and I mean, I, there are kind of, it, it's structured around patent fantasies. So... 
there's the idea that it, it will always be above politics, that it has nothing to do with politics. Yeah, which and as right you say, from is, the beginning, that's mad. It is mad. And actually, I'm sure you noticed this, swatting up for this podcast as I did, that this is an incredibly political story from the beginning. And, this sort of, and, that's yeah. the and there's never a moment, there's never a moment, ever, there's never been no. a moment where the Olympics has been separate from politics. But also, th this kind of ideal of the amateur, which he is picking up from Tom Brown's school days and, you know, British public schools and stiff upper lips and things, that... That this is a that, that this is a, a practical way of organising sport in an increasingly industrialised mass yeah. entertainment era. I mean, and, and that that lasts kind of pretty. I mean, it lasts for decades, doesn't it? I mean, it, it does. It, takes it lasts a long part time of it to the sort of mid to late twentieth century, exactly. Yeah. So you're right because, of course, professional sport already exists. So Absolutely, you know, yes. Um, particularly, which is in why England. the British have, are not particularly interested in the Olympics. Yeah, because it's it's backward. It's sort of pointless. It's sort of like, you know, when we already have so many professional sports, and when we're living in a world of WG Grace and you know the the football league and and yeah. rugby league and all these things, the idea of the Olympics just seems ridiculously old fashioned, even in the eighteen nineties. I think, and it's a bit French, isn't it? It is a bit French, but it's so interesting that with all these sporting things, it's the British that kind of have the original idea but it takes the french to codify them this is true of football as well fifa and and you know it often takes europe continental europeans i think because the british were there first they generally are just happy to although you know, dominic um yeah i mean a reassuring note from from a from a um a cricketing point of view yeah, is french. that um someone who uh, someone who has um, joined the ioc so the initial committee uh, yeah. was actually the um the captain of the new zealand cricket team so right. steady hand on the tiller there. Have there, has cricket ever been played at the Olympics? Yes, it's played in the second Olympiad, nineteen hundred. Yeah, at, held in Paris, where there are, there was one match, um, and it was England against France. Um, the in England was well, it was Britain, I suppose. Um, Britain was was represented by a team of of strolling players from Devon and Somerset, and France was represented by British expats in in paris right and i'm proud to say that britain won but france got the silver medal so france is a silver medalist is that is that is the current silver medalist in cricket it's a wonderful wow. detail that's a lot our listeners in dijon will be delighted <laughs> by that won't they i mean yeah, i hope so i, hope I know, so. We have, I know we're very i know we're very popular in france our but, dominic of course uh, paris is the second one but the first one is held where else in athens yes you know, it's kind of interesting they never think to hold it actually in olympia I think because the Olympia is seen as a bit of a disappointment. There's not actually, yeah. it takes a long time to excavate. So there isn't very much there. Um, whereas Athens, I guess, is kind of more suitable. But also Athens is the capital, isn't it, of the newly independent or relatively newly independent Greece. So it's tied up with ideas of national, you know, must must have been tied up with enormous ideas about Greek national pride and so on. I, do, I think, I think, and I may not have this entirely, but I think the, the games open on Greek Independence Day. Right. And of and course, Greece the, is... the, the great innovative race is the uh, is the marathon, yeah. which, which they run from the grave of the Persians on the, the plain of Marathon, where the, the Athenians had defeated Persia. Um, and then the news is supposed, you know, the story goes that the news is brought to Athens by Pheidippides, who then collapses as he delivers it. Um, and so they, they restage this race running from um, the, uh, the the tomb of the Persians all the way into Athens, and it's won by a Greek. 
And actually, course, I think this is not an event that they did at the Olympics, right? No, the no. Olympics. So it's a complete innovation, but it's a yeah. tremendous success. Um, and I think that because it's won by Greek, um, Greece becomes terribly enthusiastic about it as a result. Yeah. And they're very keen to stage it permanently in Athens. Um, but but the, I, I think, I mean, I think it has a kind of, um, a kind of, you know, it genuinely is gloriously amateur. So there's, there's, a, there's a guy who's there on holiday who enters the tennis and kind of wins the gold. And there's a brilliant thing about the swimming that, um, you know, they don't have a pool. So they hold it in Piraeus Harbour and it's oh, unseasonably God. cold. Right. So people jump in to do the swimming event and it's so cold that lots of them get, get back out again. <laughs> and, this, and actually problems with, with swimming events is a theme of the early Olympics. So in Paris yeah. in, in 1900, they hold it in the Seine. And the currents are so strong there that uh, your medal chances depend on whether you can catch the right current or not. That's great. And I at St. Louis do, do in, in, um, in 1904, two of the gold medal winning U.S. water polo team die six months after the event because they've contracted typhoid from the lagoon in which the water polo God. had been played. Well, so you, it's, you pay it, a high price for elite sporting you, achievement. You, you, really, <laughs> you really do. Um, but... I, I think that, that the sense of kind of shambolic amateurism that is a kind of, you know, it's a quality of the first games in Athens. is it, it's, it's the one in Paris that absolutely exemplifies it. Yeah. And the reason for that is that it's piggybacking onto the World Exhibition that is being held in Paris. Isn't that the case with a lot of these early Olympics? That yes. They're basically all arranged around Same with St. Louis. Yes. Yeah. And actually, you know, so, so that goes back to Crystal Palace. The, and the great exhibition yeah this idea that you have a, a great gathering of people from across the world and you showcase your your city and your country with it well a remember great... that uh, w- william penny brooks's thing at watch wenlock see bring it back to shropshire was that um prizes would also be awarded for proficiency in intellectual and industrial attainments so that's very i mean this that's a year before the great exhibition so it's very much that victorian sort of spirit that as you say that the trade fairs therefore are not an illegitimate you know, they're part of the essence from the beginning. And that's something absolutely that well, asked. I think, yes, I think, I mean, I think they structure the whole idea of the Olympics as we understand it now. I mean, I mean yeah. that's a crucial part of it. And part of the problem for Coubertin and the Olympic movement is that um, people are going to Paris for the trade fair, and they have no idea that the Olympics are going on. And so there's this kind of wonderful, um, probably my, my, my favorite Olympian of all time is an American woman called Margaret Abbott who is in Paris um, studying with, with Degas, with Rodin. She's a, an artist. Yeah. And she gets told, yeah, there's this golf contest going on. Would you like to enter it? And she's like, yeah, okay, great. So she enters the golf. She wins. She has no idea that she's won gold in the golf contest. She's the, that she is America's first gold medal, female gold medal winner. And she dies in 1955. And people still then? don't know. She, <laughs> oh, so, she, so she dies never knowing that she's been an Olympic gold medalist. And I think it's only kind of in the 70s or 80s when historians of the Olympics go through and work this out that she gets enshrined in this role, which you know kind of brilliantly shows that is how so symbolic strange. the whole affair is. Um, there's, and, the, the, and the other kind of very haunting story from the, the Paris Olympics is that um, the Dutch rowing team, uh, they don't yeah. have a cox. I think the cox falls ill or something. And so they scoop a French boy who's about 10, you know, off one of the canals or something. And he coxes them. 
And I think, again, I think they win. They get the gold medal. But nobody knows who this boy is. So he's he's the only gold medal winning Olympian who is anonymous. So that's great stuff, isn't it? Did he know he'd won? Did he even know himself what he was doing? Just some blokes had put him on a boat and said... Not sure. Don't know. Um, Wow. So all all, all good stuff. Um, But the greatest race of all time is the marathon that was raced in St. Louis... In 1904. In 1904. And Tom, I think we should have a break, shouldn't we? Absolutely, and we should have a break. I'm going to come back. Can I, I tell you about yeah. that? Because I think it's... it's tell me at great length, because I know you so love this story. brilliant. And then, and <laughs> okay. then basically my knowledge of the Olympics is exhausted. And I'll, <laughs> I I'll don't hand the battle over to you. I do not believe that's true. All right, we'll take a break and we'll come back for the greatest marathon of all time. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Tom Holland has made great claims for his marathon story. Um, I, <laughs> I, am, I am so looking forward to hearing it. Tom, please do it justice. Well, they made Chariots of Fire, but honestly, if you're making a film, this is the race that you'd want to do. It, I think it's the greatest race in Olympics history. Um, raced it in 1904 at St. Louis, which is very hot, very sticky, um, very dusty. And the organisers... Um, they they make the marathon along a route where there is, I think, a single water cooler 12 miles into the race, but otherwise there is no source of water. And is it 26 miles at this point? Yeah, and there are scientists who want to measure the effects of dehydration on elite athletes. So that's the context. So that's part of the fun. So so I will describe some of the contestants who, the the positions where they run. So the, the guy who comes in first is a guy called Fred Lortz, who is a bricklayer and a notorious practical joker. Uh, he is awarded the gold medal, and it then turns out that he's hitched nine-mile lift on the back of a truck. <laughs> so he gets stripped of his medal, and he says, I'll oh, just have a laugh, just have a laugh. Yeah. So the next person who comes in, who then is in line for winning the medal, is a guy called Thomas Hicks, who is a, a, a professional, you know, he's, he's a seasoned marathon runner. Um. He has a coach who can see that, that Hicks is flagging, so gives him an elite sports drink. So kind of, you know, the equivalent Luke, of a nice Luke's Luke's sports drink. Lucasade. But do you know what it consists of? It consists of egg whites, yeah. brandy, yeah. and strychnine. Oh, my God. I didn't expect so, the strychnine. <laughs> no. So, so he's staggering towards the final post. He gets this kind of great glug of strychnine, <laughs> and he starts to go delirious yeah. and starts kind of wandering off all the wrong way. So he has to be guided towards the finish line and people have to literally, you know, his helpers have to literally lift his feet up because by this point he's absolutely out of it. So he wins. He, he, he is the medal winner. Um, coming in number four is a Cuban postman called Felix Carvajal. Right. Who, who's in Cuba. He runs up and down Cuba. That's what he does for fun. <laughs> and he, he hitches a lift on a boat from Cuba to America. Um, he loses all his money gambling. So he turns up at, at St. Louis. He doesn't have any any cash to buy running gear. So he comes to the start of the race in his brogues, in his kind of thick, heavy trousers. Uh, he's got a beret on. He's got a baggy white shirt. I mean, he couldn't be less well equipped to run it. Um, one of the other contenders takes pity on him and, and chops off the bottoms of his trousers so that he's kind of wearing running shorts by this point. 
he he sets off he stops at various points to he he, he nicks i think some um apricots <laughs> from a from from a tree is that, is that an artificial stimulant surely not he 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 eats some some apples that are raw so he gets upset he's stopping the whole way to kind of chat with people but he comes in fourth yeah so that's a that, that's, that's a great, great principle achievement but the 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 in a way the most creditable achievement of all is um a, a guy called Len Tao. Len Tao. Who comes... Len Tao. He comes from South Africa, or to be specific, from a, a tribe in South Africa. And he is there as part of um, probably the most sinister aspect of these international Oh, fairs. I know what you're going to say. So they had this in Paris, and they have it in St. Louis. Is it Lewis, the Department of Anthropology kind of hum- have set this up? Yeah. It's human zoos. So they had it, they have this in Paris... Uh, and they have it in St. Louis. They they bring people over from various parts of the, the colonial empire. And in, in America, they bring Native Americans over as well. And they kind of put them up in villages. And what they do in St. Louis is um, they have this um, idea that they, want to, that they want to measure the athletic capacity of people they see as inferior. So it, it's, I think, the, the kind of the press in America call them the Savage Olympics. And they get all these guys from out of the, the human zoos and they, you know, they, these people have never done weightlifting or, you know, anything. And, they, and, and they're made to compete and they don't do very well. And so this is taken as proof that, that white people are more proficient at, at athletics than, than everyone else. Um, but Lentau enters the, uh, enters the marathon and he, he races barefoot, um, comes in ninth. But that is all the more creditable because while he's running the marathon... He gets attacked by a dog, and has to run an extra mile to escape it. Wow! So I think I think he's, he he is my yeah. Kind he's the moral of, victor, isn't he? He is the absolute moral well, victor. It's a, well, it's a, it's a great that achievement. is a great team. Well, talking of moral victors, you know the marathon in the next Olympics, nineteen oh eight. There's a great story there about a man called. Do you know this about this Durando Pietri, Tom? No. So no. He's a uh, he's very short. He's five foot two. He's a shop boy, a confectionery shop boy from um, from Italy. And where is this one being? So at? this is nineteen oh eight, which is is it Antwerp? No, it's London. Oh, it's London. London! Yes, of it's course. London. Yes, White City. They build yeah. White City. So, they? yeah. So he um, has entered a a race in Italy. He saw a race in Italy in 90, four years earlier, and he was still in. He was dressed in his work clothes. He was going to work or something, and he saw the race going by, and he thought he'd join in. And he came and he did really well. I think he won it, actually. So he started to run marathons and stuff. And he, he trains really hard for the, um, for the 1908 Olympics. He runs the marathon. And it, it, it's an incredibly hot day. It's an unseasonably hot day. And he, he overtakes the leader just before the end. And then he get, they come into the, the stadium or whatever. And there's a very famous photo. You've probably seen it without knowing it. Yeah. Um, he keeps collapsing and the crowd are cheering him on and he's collapsing and he's almost at the line. There are 75,000 people there. I think he falls four times. And eventually, right at the finish line, the, he collapses again and the umpires have to lift him up and, and sort of drag him over the line. And he's disqualified, despite yeah. the fact that there's one. So what then happens is um, Queen Alexandra gives him a gilded silver cup as a as a reward, you know, to say, you know, well done you. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle writes an article about him and about his heroism for the Daily Mail. 
It's a big oh, article in the first with the big in, in sports the, stories. All, all the best people have written about the Olympics in the Daily Mail, Tom. So Arthur yes, Conan Doyle writes about him in the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail readers, with their characteristic generosity, start an appeal for him. They raise the equivalent of thirty thousand pounds for this man, and he goes back to Italy and he uses it to open a bakery. That's a wonderful Isn't that story. A nice, everybody comes out of that well. It, um, well, except that isn't there. Isn't the context of that also a deep strain of, of British anti-Americanism? Because the, it's, it's an American, I think, who wins it is, it is, the it race. Is. <laughs> and there's, there's a lot of kind of um, American sneering at the, the decadence of British yes. sport. So everyone comes out of this, this well, is, except does... the Americans, I think. Maybe should <laughs> yes, yes, maybe. Well, that, yeah, yeah, but perhaps. Um, um, but, and so that's the context of the, the London Games. Yeah, yeah. Or, um, and then you have uh, Stockholm. Stockholm, the next one. I sort of which, lose which, my lose. Okay, so stock, but Stockholm is important just because that's the first one to be held without reference to a trade fair. Right, nineteen twelve. So it's, yeah. it kind of emancipates itself from that. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you have the First World War. Yeah. Loads of Olympians die in the war, and then it's Antwerp. And then you. Ha- is that right? Then it's Antwerp, and then it's Paris, right? So Paris is the chariots of fire, games. Yes. Um, so tell us about that. Well, I mean, for those who haven't seen, for it. those who haven't seen it, the Chariots of Fire really focuses. David Putnam discovered a book, I think, in 1977. The film producer he was in Malibu, and he had a cold or something, so he, he was staying in a borrowed house, and he was really miserable. And he reached for a book off the shelves, and it was the story of the 19 of the Olympics. I think I think it was the history of the Olympics, and he became fixated on the story of the 1924 Games, which has these two um, iconic British competitors. Harold Abrahams, who is Jewish, who is the son of a Jewish immigrant, um, who wins the 100 metres, um, but but has raised hackles uh, with the sort of the patrician officials back in Britain because he employs a professional coach, an Italian, Sam Mussabini. And the other great athlete who is, you know, will need no introduction is Eric Liddell, the brilliant Scottish runner who refuses to run in the 100 metres heats because they're on a Sunday um, and he believes that's sacred, so he runs um, in the I think the four hundred meters instead and wins gold. And you know, if anyone who I'm personally, I I'm I'm one of because I'm a sort of sentimental person. I find it hard to watch Chariots of Fire without getting kind of choked up, particularly at the sort of I the sort of the completely unironic. And, and sort of sincere treatment of Liddell's religious faith and how important it is to him and how he sees his athletic prowess as a gift from God. Um, and this this wonderful story that an American competitor before the race sort of leaves him a note um, that says, you know, whoever honours me, I will honour. And, and Liddell uses this as, as inspiration. And of course, Liddell then goes on after having won gold and having become a national hero. He goes on to leave athletics completely and to become a missionary in China and ends his days in a Japanese internment camp uh, where he dies just before the end of the war. So he is a genuinely, you know, we, we do a lot of people with feet of clay in this podcast, but I'm not convinced he did have feet of clay, actually. I think he's a genuinely, incredibly admirable um, and impressive man. So there you go. Uh, well, there is um, also in the uh, 1924 Olympics, I think, is the first Irish winner. Is that um, n- not per se? Because the the guy who um, who won the tennis in the 
1896, so the Athens Games was was Irish Irish nationalist. Uh, at the London Games, there was um, an Irish competitor who won gold. The Union Jack went up, and he replaced it with the uh, the Irish flag. But the first person to win it as you know the the free state was the uh, the younger brother of the poet W. B. Yeats, who um, won silver for painting. For paint. So they were still doing. Yeah, and that they should still do painting, yeah. shouldn't they? And it's interesting because Yeats, Yeats's brother was um, he did lots of cartoons for Punch, and he did a um, a strip cartoon parodying Sherlock Holmes. So a kind of you know improbable yeah. um, Olympic victor, yeah. but he 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 then he, apparently he's very highly rated artist. I think strip cartoonist. So, um, def- I think like Stan Lee should have <laughs> should have entered yeah, the United know. States in the sixties or something. Um, so that's all fun. Um, and then you have Amsterdam, and then you have uh, in the thirties you have two games that essentially create the Olympics, create the, the yeah. Olympics as as we know them. So, and and these are chiefly interesting for the fact that my great uncle competed in them. Is that are they chiefly interesting? Are you sure you've chosen your words? Yeah, they're chiefly interesting for that reason. Chiefly interesting. <laughs> so, my great uncle uh, Charles Holland, amazing cyclist, went to L.A. came fifteenth. Then in the 1936 Berlin Olympics came fourth, oh. but he would have cut. He would have come first, except that the foreigners cheated by having gears. Oh, that is cheating! And Great Uncle Charlie, being British, refused to use gears because he yeah. viewed it as cheating. So he's the moral victor, isn't he? The moral victor, isn't I think so. So I'm the great nephew, basically, of a, a, of a great a, Olympian. A moral, yeah, a great Olympian. Uh, you, you're right. Obviously, there are other aspects of, of the LA and the Berlin Games, but you know, LA is the home of, of, of Hollywood. Yeah. So, and Hollywood in its pomp, and the idea that pomp. it's show business, and it, yeah, absolutely. But and then you have, but but it's run on a shoestring because this is the Great Depression, and there's there's so um, LA creates the podium, doesn't it? LA, they they get yeah. basically with the Hollywood razzmatazz, they invent the podium. They start playing national. This is this surprised me because in Chariots of Fire, the film, the playing of the British national anthem is a key moment because it's the moment that Sam Musabini, Harold Abrahams' coach, because re- he's too nervous to watch the race, so he only knows his man has worn when he hears the British national anthem. But I I now discover that in 1932, they introduced national anthems to, for the first time, so this could not have happened. Also, the flame, the flame in the cauldron. I mean, that's a very Hollywood touch. Um, yeah. And that's Los Angeles. So they didn't do that in the ancient Olympics, Tom. They didn't have an Olympic flame then. Or did they have a torch no. or anything like that? No. That's no. all, Not that's all utter tell. bilge. That's yeah. all, yeah. I mean, that's that's the, the most famous little-known fact about the Olympics, isn't it? Yes, I suppose so. That people always bring Not, fam- that it, it's, Not it's, famous to me, clearly. But the person, you know, the, the, the guys who invent the idea of the, the torch relay from Olympia. Yeah. To, to the games is the yes, Nazis. Yes, they're not good guys. And there's a case for saying that really the the template for the modern games as we know them now, you know, it's it's the most enduring cultural expression of fascism. Absolutely agree with you. Yeah, that we have. I completely agree with you. Um, I think it's an extraordinary thing, isn't it, that people talk about the 1936 games as though they're an anomaly, um, as though they are the sort of great. Well, I mean, they are. They are a blot on the. They are a stain on the record of the Olympics. But I completely agree with you. They are the moment that the modern Olympics really began. Yeah. Because the Nazis and Lenny Riefenstahl and the way they are packaged, that creates the template for all subsequent Olympics. And indeed, that's sort of, in a way, that the fascism isn't an anomaly because there is a kind of commonality between 
the sort of the Nazi aesthetic in the 1930s and the sort of Victorian worship of manliness, virility. But also it's proper, you know, it's properly, uh, you know, there is a kind of Greek element, an authentically Greek element with the assumption that that what is physically beautiful is morally beautiful. And that's, you know, that's a very much a kind of fascist idea. Absolutely. Yeah. That the body beautiful. So the kind, you know, the famous um, image in the film of the uh, the classical statue of the discus thrower yes. becoming living flesh. That's what the essence, you know, of, of, of those 36, the 1936 games is. And all the kind of Hellenic flummery that they throw in. So the, 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 the torch race the significance of that is that the Nazis are casting themselves as the kin of the Aryan Greeks who had set up the Olympics. And when the torch comes into, um, first enters the Reich, it does it at, at a village called Hellendorf. So Hellas, yeah. you know, is the, the Greek name for Greece. Um, so it's all kind of absolutely pinpoint synchronization convey to the world that germany is is the heir of of classical greece yeah um and they're, they're not really very interested obviously in the the kind of universalist dreams and ideals that uh, kubitan had had embodied um i mean they 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 kind of they they have to uh, agree to let jews compete well, there's, there's, and actually there's a jewish a number of yeah. jews get goals they do they? so and there's jews uh for example there's a german fencer helen meyer she she they keep her on the team um she's jewish they keep her on the team and they use her as evidence that actually they're much kinder and cuddlier than than their foreign critics allow so they sort of say oh look you know we're not we're much more tolerant than and they do all these kinds of things so they they ban the publication of um der stürmer the nazi newspaper is kept off the streets of berlin they do they do all this kind of manicuring of the regime Band authors reappear in exactly all this sort of stuff, and actually, um, there's some there's some really fascinating books being written about the 1936 games, talking about all the American and British visitors um, who arrive and are completely taken in. You know, they they pitch up and they say the answers aren't as bad as they appear. You know, things the the nightlife in the nightclubs is is great. Um, You know, even though just outside the city, uh, people are even then political political prisoners are even then building the Sachsenhausen concentration camp. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think Germany has just remilitarized the Rhineland. So Hitler's intentions are kind of clear. Um, There's no doubt about the nature of the regime. Um, but people, it's a, it, it's a, it's the template for people deluding themselves, using the Olympic Games to to almost willfully delude themselves about the nature of the the host nation. So there, I mean, there are amazing stories. There's this a woman who famously gives Hitler a kiss. Um, two American tourists, they kind of event come to the games and they and they go in and this woman, um, she she's quite close to him in the stadium, and she she goes over sort of spontaneously she sees a chance just when his security guards have their backs turned and she goes and kisses him and, and the image goes around the world and she goes back to america and she becomes a bit at california i think and she becomes a bit of a celebrity and i always i've always wondered what happened to her after the war or what point she <laughs> yeah you wouldn't want that on yeah. your facebook page <laughs> no, would you? that is cancellation we're going to remove that, that. cancellation yes. worthy. That, that that would be a problem um and i i guess i mean so the fame, the famous story is Jesse Owens. Yeah, he wins four four medals. Who, is it four medals? Four medal, and obviously he's black. Yes. Um, 
and that plays very so south of the mason dixon line no photographs of him are printed in any newspaper but north of it equally you get stories like that, that hitler refused to shake hands which is him. not true actually which is not yeah, true it's weird to be so, correcting so, so, a, uh, a story about hitler in order to present him in a better light but it's not true that hitler i mean hitler did express great sort of disapproval of jesse owens no doubt about that but he's in the he's in the the Riefenstahl film yeah he is I mean, there's no no attempt to censor him out no 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 like that's that. right but um, hitler had been told by the organizers he would have to shake hands with he could not pick and choose who he shook hands with they said basically don't you know it's not really good form for the head of state to shake hands with. So unless you're going to shake hands with literally everybody, you shouldn't do it at all. So he didn't really do it at all. Um, so it's not true that he he sort mm. of blacklisted Jesse Owens. Um, but it's but it's kind of interesting because if you think back to um, the role played by, um, you know, I mean, the most blatant racism in the St. Louis, yeah. um, uh, the games. Yeah. That, that this is obviously still a part of American sporting culture that will then, after the war, you know, continue to play out. Yeah, of course. Um, so it's an American story as well as a, as a German story. But I mean, it, it, it's the. I, th- I mean, I think the story that really sums up the role that the Berlin Olympics plays in this is that the um, the, the, the 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 captain, the officer who's in charge of the Olympic Village in Berlin, um, is Jewish. And so three days after the end of the Olympics, he gets he loses his commission and he shoots himself. Yeah. And nobody cares because by that point, the eyes of the world are off, are off the games. Um, but the sense that it's been a tremendous success for Germany, that it's shown the Reich in a kind of tremendous golden light, that really does continue to to resonate out and so that's why japan puts in the bid for the games in 1940 yeah which of course never happened and really you're starting to see what what becomes a theme after the war that um governments start to recognize that hosting the games can really redound to your credit yes. and it's really it's it's the 1936 games that show that and and establishes the template of course the 1940 games you know they don't go ahead they get cancelled um, Second World War erupts, no Olympic Games, and I realise that um, essentially we have gone on for far too long. <laughs> yeah, we've gone. That this is not a sprint. That this is going to be it a is. marathon. We've, we've actually proceeded so perhaps... at literally half the pace that we um, <laughs> yes. that we should have done. So we're not going to podium <laughs> with this one. So perhaps perhaps we should um, well perhaps we should we should uh, take a break like the Cuban marathon runner did. Have a, have a an apple yeah. or an apricot or something and, and do, um, and do and, another podcast. Um, do another podcast where we will go from from the end of the second world war up to the present day brilliant let's do that then so we shall see you in the next podcast for well moscow los angeles london munich you name it yeah lots lots to do all right see you then bye-bye bye-bye thanks for listening to the rest is history for bonus episodes early access ad-free listening and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.